You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. We're going to continue talking about being happy, and we've kind of carved some territory on this because we've, we've said that being happy really isn't about the kinds of things only that we, we talk about, right? It's not just about what job you have. We've talked about how it's more than um, the certain opportunities you want. It's more than the um, attitude you have towards others. Although all of those things can build into a package that feels very happy, very good. But what we find in the life of Paul is that happiness is not often tied to circumstance. Happiness is not tied specifically to circumstance. Now, that isn't to say that circumstances can't be good and we don't celebrate good circumstances. We party, we have fun, we, we, we express what is good as, in gratitude. This is gift. But what Paul gets us to really think about in his letter to the church at Philippi is what is the nature of happiness actually? And throughout the letter, there's these moments where it's like, be happy. Things are great. And then it's like, by the way, God was great and decided to be executed. And isn't that super? That was last week. So, so, so like there's, there's these moments where you're, you're starting to get a glimpse of it. And by the end of the letter, you're going you're gonna to have a clear picture. He's going to just straight up say it. Like, I've learned how to be content no matter the situation, whether well-fed or hungry, right? And he just will go on this rant about it, that circumstance, and happiness don't always have to correlate. But if that's true, it begs the question. So in Paul's worldview, there was something that made those two things possible. There's something within him that, that sort of created the space and the capacity for circumstance and happiness to not have to be the same all the time. And for him, that was his experience of the risen Jesus. And so that's what we're going to continue to look at this morning. And in fact, we're going to look at one of the, the weirder, harder parts of Philippians and really try and wrestle with some of the implications of it. And I think, I think you may have heard the phrase, and so I'll just give you a spoiler alert. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Depending on your background, you've heard that all kinds of ways. Uh, it might have been manipulative. It might have been work it out because you don't know, right? So, so some people have taken that to say like, work out your salvation is like, you could lose it. Like you could, you could like do something that offends God so much that you're not good enough for the team anymore. That, that, that's one narrative that's been taken from this. I don't think that's what Paul's really getting at, and we're going to talk about that more. I think what he's really getting at is there are implications for being a member of the Christian community. There are implications for being saved into a family, and those implications cost something. So work it out. Work it out. Now, when I think of working it out, I think of my failures in life, because every time I'm talking about working it out, I have to think about the on and off, on and off, on and off, that you all have witnessed in my journey here at Pangea, depending on how long you've been here. You, you knew a 20-pound heavier version of me at one point. But, but work it out is like 
the metaphor just hits me in a particular kind of way. It, how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have spent any season of your life in a gym? Just think about that. Just think about that. Think about when that was. Maybe it's current, right? Maybe it's current and you're saying, yeah, like that, that's actually one of the things that contributes to the happy life that I experience, right? That's one of the good circumstances. Others of you maybe have had positive experiences in that sort of like body space in the past. I don't know. And maybe you haven't. So I'm not trying to put a metaphor on every single person. I just want to invite you, if you have had those sorts of moments, think about what it was actually like. Think about the times when you, you worked hard and you felt nauseous afterwards. You ever had that moment? Think about those times when you woke up earlier than you wanted to because you thought it was worth some goal you had. And you wanted to sleep. And maybe sometimes you slept in through your alarm. And if you're like me, you probably slept in through your alarm habitually and then you didn't, you know, you don't, you don't go back or something. But, but it's a great metaphor. Whether or not it works perfectly, we all kind of know what we're talking about at least. When we talk about sort of the, the working out idea. And, and to be really honest, outside of a few people that I know who are very, just by nature, have this sense of like discipline and structure and just have to get it done, a lot of us in this world aren't as disciplined and structured. I don't think we should feel bad about that. But my point is this, that it's hard. Now, let's take it another step. Maybe you are like me and you had a great season of physical health, kind of slept in a little bit. And then when you woke up, you were cranky. So you had some coffee and eventually you added cream to that coffee and eventually you added sugar to that coffee. Eventually you thought, I need a pastry with the coffee, right? And you just kind of, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it just kind of, okay, that was a good season, right? That's, that's how I look at my life. And, 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 then, and then all of a sudden you get re-energized and you're like, I think I want to become that person again, right? And maybe you step into it and some of us are successful and that ends up being a habitual thing for a very long time. But the progress you think you'd made back there isn't who you are now, right? Those pastries caught up with you. That cream caught up with you because you added too much sugar. Monk fruit, just so you know. Monk fruit tastes like sugar, zero calories. Might kill you, but it probably won't. Okay, so, so, so you're, you're stuck now in a new, yeah, great advice, right? Oh, monk fruit sugar is like, I take it by the spoon when I have a craving right now. It's, yeah, it's zero calories, gang, just saying. Um, and so, so <laughs> why am I telling you this? I don't know, this is funny to me. Um, and so, so, so you're, like, you're like, okay. So before, I could run on this treadmill for like 30 minutes at five miles an hour. Like you dial in like exactly who you were over there. And right now, I run on this treadmill at three and a half miles an hour for 10 minutes and I get a side ache. And in that moment, we have to decide something, don't we? Is the side ache worth what I think could happen on the other side of it? Is giving up donuts in the morning worth what I think is on the other side of it? It seems to me that what we're going to be looking at is that very thing. 
is, is the pain worth the potential product? And I don't want to commodify it, but that's a way to think about it. Is the pain worth the potential product of this sort of process? There's some people who say yes when it comes to gym, and there's some people who say no. Here's some people who say no in their own way. So I love, I love this. At the gym, just finish my third set of selfies. I can't stand these people because they've never needed to work out in their lives. They look fine. They're good. But they love their selfies at the gym because they want to show that they try, you know. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's so judgmental of me, too. I'm just going to be honest. Um, that sounds terrible. I know. I know. But whatever. I'm, I'm not a good person sometimes, okay? Get over it. The cloth doesn't do anything. And in fact, in our tradition, we don't wear anything that called cloth. Okay, so I love, I love uh, this one by one of the funniest men, unless you think he's obnoxious. Uh, I ran twice a day. First, I ran out of beer, and then I ran to get some more. Well, that, my friends, no one should feel guilty about. Okay, um, and then, and then, El Arroyo, I'm hopefully said that right, uh, is a restaurant, apparently in Texas, because I see a Texas thing there, and it says, yeah, I'm into fitness, fitness whole taco in my mouth, yeah, I like it, I like it, I, you know, if, if you're going to market tacos, that's, that's the one way to do it, so, so we understand that, like, there's stigma with this idea of having to work things out, Work out problems we have in our lives. Work out challenges at work. Work out, like, like whatever you're working out, if it's something to be worked out, it probably causes you frustration of some kind. And that's, that's what Paul wants us to look at. Is like, like this thing, if you're, if you're a Christian and you believe that this Jesus is raised from the dead and invites you into newness, like it is not easy. And get used to that. If you want to experience the newness, the renewingness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it is not easy. And so that's kind of what I want to invite us to look at, that there's, there's something really hard about this thing. And, you know, one of the things that I want to give us some grace with is this. That when your actions don't mirror your desires, we'll use the gym metaphor one more time. I desire to be the kind of person who is fit, but I have not been able to act on that. Let's, let's pretend that my mind is justifiable. It's not. I'm just going to pretend it is, though, because you can use baby for anything, right? So, so, so you can say, right, like, I might be in a situation where my deepest desire, which I hope it's not my deepest desire, but my deepest desire is to be super fit, the best version of my physical self. But I've had a, I didn't have it. Someone else in my family had a baby. I held hands. Sometimes got my hand held harder than I wanted to. I shed tears. It was weird. I didn't think I was going to cry. I cried. It's whatever. Good moment, sort of. Um, and my whole flow of life disappeared in 2019. But my, yep, yep. <laughs> right, right? Back there, 2018 at least, right? 2016 or whatever, right? Like 15, I remember. September 11th? Bam, I'm such a good pastor. Okay, and so, so, so I, I get it 
desire and action don't always work out. And some of the time it's very like circumstantial. Like you would be crazy to get up and go to the gym at six in the morning when you are needed in case something goes down with baby, right? It's just not a good idea. Maybe it is, you know, work it out yourselves. But, but you get the idea, right? And so sometimes desire and action don't meet up and it's okay. This isn't about beating ourselves up. That doesn't help you at all. It actually is regression in its own way, right? Because if you regress out of grace, you're regressing out of the very thing Jesus wants for you for your own progress, right? So, so, so there are times when desire and action just can't go together. But my friends, there are sometimes when desire and action must go together if we're going to grow. The patterns of my life in 2019, my hope is they're not the patterns of my life in 2020. Because the thing that makes me feel good about not necessarily acting on all my desires now has been lifted. Now, does that mean my, the grace I should have for myself is gone? Not at all. But it now questions the intensity of the desire. Do you see, see how we can hold that? And so I, I, I try and just put this out there. And the gym metaphor, come on, get over it. Like if, I don't care if you have a deep desire to go to the gym whatever, you know, but like, like hopefully that, that image is something you can just kind of hold on to and say, we need to have more grace for ourselves and just honor the fact that God looks at you, God sees your desire before God ever sees what you do. But sometimes what you're invited to do with that desire is going to cause fear, trembling, suffering, pain, struggle. It's not going to be easy. And so we, we step into the passage today kind of holding that space together. And we step into this letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it from prison. Historically, we kind of know this. It's, it's, there are some things about Paul that are very disputable in historical circles. One of them is not whether Paul wrote Philippians or whether it was written in a prison cell. Every scholar I've ever read, doesn't matter what they think about God. This is real. This is the authentic Paul writing, and he was in jail. And what a weirdo. He's all happy and stuff. Seriously. Like if you don't take away from this that this guy's kind of weird, I don't know. I think he's weird. But, but he's We'll put up our fancy map. I'm going to do this every single week because I like this stuff. Paul is likely up in Rome in prison towards the latter part of his ministry. And he's writing letters. One of them is to Philippi. We have um, other letters that are possible from this time uh, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians. Um, but we know for sure that this letter comes from Paul and goes to Philippi. And we also know that he's had quite a bit of a journey because he's been in Jerusalem several times. And, and this kind of just gives you the landscape of the Mediterranean. And he's trying to encourage these followers of Jesus. And one of the things he's thankful 
for is that they've been helpful to him. Hey, you all have contributed to my financial well-being as I've been in jail. That's one of the themes that's going to come through this letter over and over. He is so grateful to them. Because in jail, no one's going to give you food. This isn't 21st century America with all of the prison problems that we need to name that are terrible, disproportional racial issues and death sentences and all the things that we would say that's, un- that's unjust and we affirm the injustice of the system we have now. Rome was meaner and didn't even give food. And so it took people coming alongside saying, here's resources so that you don't die in prison. Because it'd be kind of convenient if a prisoner just died. Don't even have to behead him. Paul would get beheaded eventually. And so, so these Jesus followers from around the Mediterranean have been supporting Paul as he's struggled and waited for a trial that will come that we believe historically probably led to his execution. And so now we step into this uh, section of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 2, verse 12 through 18. And um, we, we hold all of that tension with Paul. And this is where he goes with it. He says in verse 12, and it's on the screen. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you, have always, um, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I'm away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's our key verse today. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. So there's desire and action. You see it? So, so God gives you the, the ability to desire this and God invites you to live it out. Do everything, verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. And I want to pause there. We could read this in the 21st century and be like, wow, he's so mean to non-Christians or something. Like that, 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 Paul is in a Roman prison cell. Do you think he's around people that are crooked and corrupt as he writes this letter? Absolutely. Has he seen the crookedness and corruption of even religious people that have said, okay, you want to talk about Jesus? Let's give you lashes on your back. I mean, he, he's experienced the worst of humanity and he would even claim that he was part of the worst of the humanity that existed. And then he tells them, look, as you work this thing out, he says, among these people, you shine like stars in the world or the universe, the cosmos, because you hold onto the word of life. This will allow me to say on the day of Christ that I haven't run for nothing or worked for nothing, but even if I am poured out like a drink offering, Upon the altar of service for your faith, I'm glad. I'm glad with all of you. You should be glad about this in the same way. Be glad with me. He says, like, like even if my life, my existence is being 
poured out. Now, in the ancient world, a drink offering would often, I, I think of the Roman drink offerings would often, they're called libations. They, they would have these like saucer bowls and, and you actually see pictures of um, Caesar Augustus, for instance, holding one of these things because Caesar Augustus is considered the high priest of Rome because he thought that would be a good idea. And so, so he will pour out onto the altar. And this is very significant practice. The Jewish people had their own drink offering. Like, so, so this idea is that something of life, blood maybe, juice is life in a sense, right? Wine is being poured out. Paul is saying, look, I'm willing to show you what it looks like to work it out. I just want to know that you're going to keep going. I want you to know that it's worth it. That if you do this, if you join me in this, that, that you're going to shine in a world that doesn't always look bright. How can you know that you're happy? Well, you're going to shine because of this great love that you have in Jesus. And so, what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I, I want to talk about fear and trembling in basically kind of two movements. And so the first sort of movement I want to talk about is this idea of journey, fear and trembling along the journey. That following Jesus has a cost. That there's, there's something that costs us. Now, now in our culture, we immediately go to, well, we are not martyred for our faith in North America, so we really don't know what the cost is. Fair enough. I agree. Absolutely. There are people who lay down their lives for the kingdom. Right? There, there are people who lay down their lives for Jesus. I, I, I think, I don't know if I'd have that kind of courage. Some of them don't even get to choose to have the courage. They just lay them down. At the same time, if we only live in the extremes, we, we don't allow the, the principles, and I hate that word, but the, the, the grand ideas of cost to infiltrate what is real for us. We do have our own sort of journey and realities that we face here. We do have the opportunity to have our own sort of um, counting of the cost, so to speak, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And working out our salvation, working out our invitation, our, by the way, salvation, another way you could use that word if you want a, a parallel is like preservation. Like the idea that we have been preserved into community. We've been brought into community under the lordship of Jesus. This is about how we move together as followers, how we work it out together, the implications you know, it's interesting though to me that I particularly grew up in a faith tradition that often didn't emphasize process as much as moment. And, and this isn't a critique because I think the opposite extreme is really a problem too. I, I find that if we don't notice the moments and monument the moments, that we get lost in whatever process we find ourselves in. And so I think both of those are important. Like I still remember the moment that I prayed with um, a guy named Bob Milner to accept Jesus for the first time. I, that's amazing. Four and a half years old. 
at my grandma's house, family friend, already been going to church. And he, he says, hey, you know, he'd been mentoring me, I mean, as much as you can mentor a four and a half year old. But you know, like we went to Disneyland one time, like he was just in my life. My parents had split by that time. And uh, he was mentoring me. We're talking about Socrates and, you know. Um, and, 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 and we went to Disneyland. He bought me a Peter Pan dagger and a hat. Figured this guy I can trust. Sure, Jesus, right? Like, like that's, all, that's all I needed. He showed me the Return of the Jedi too, which way too young. Um, but, but it was epic and it still is. And so I remember that moment. I remember the moment I got baptized. I remember the moment I got called into ministry. I remember these, these monumental moments that were life-altering moments. They, they were part of a process, but they were moments. But here's the thing. I grew up in this tradition that often the moments were the thing that we really talked about. And we sometimes forget how messy the process is. We hear these stories about people like I used to be a drug addict yesterday, but I accepted the Lord today, so I'm no longer a drug addict. Let's see what it looks like tomorrow, buddy. Like, you know, once in a great while that actually happens, but it is once in a very great while, right? And we'd hear those stories though, and it'd be like, oh yeah, so all we need to do is get some Jesus in us and all of the hard work disappears because now I'm just gonna go tell everyone about my newfound faith in Jesus and that's the hard work ahead of me. And that's what we wanted. But the reality isn't like that. Like reality is that maybe 1% of people who have that kind of situation, that's their, that's their story, Yeah. I never smoked another cigarette again after I found Jesus. Or I never, I never did drugs again after I found Jesus. I, you know, wh- whatever it was. I was an alcoholic until yesterday. I found Jesus. You know, beautiful. If that's, if that's your truth, beautiful. But it's the, the over-highlighting of those stories that sometimes led us to ask really weird questions that I think are valid weird questions like, what about? And those weren't very welcome. Some of you know what that's like to not have the whatabouts honored in your life. And it gets even messier because like some of us, like this passage is not about salvation is some sort of process that you don't know where you line up with God or whatever. That's how that could be used badly. But I think it gets us to ask a question about those folks among us who For them, finding Jesus was indeed a process. And honoring that even, the pre-Jesus and the messiness of what that meant for them. Process is central to human life and certainly to Christian life. And so why, why does this matter? Like, well, journey is something that takes time And so we feel it. Is there something in your life right now that you want more than anything, but you and you feel it and you can't taste what that thing is, you can just imagine it? Absolutely. I have all kinds of them. Like right now, I want a new skateboard, but no, more serious ones, I promise. And you you hold that and you wonder if it's ever gonna happen. 
Paul would say, especially if it's centered around something Jesus-y, which all of life should and could be, walk it out. Work it out. See what happens. Follow me. Paul's crazy. Like, like if you go to Galatians, another letter he wrote earlier in his life, he, he says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, you want to know what following Jesus has meant for me? It's meant a spiritual crucifixion and hey, it might actually mean a physical one. I don't know yet. Like, For him, it's been this journey of purging himself of all of the things that he used to tell himself about his own identity. I'm zealous for God, so I'm going to resist Christianity. It wasn't called Christianity back then, but you get the idea. I'm going to fight with all my being to preserve what I believe is true. And he has this moment with Jesus that changes everything but it inaugurates a process. He doesn't start preaching the next day. He, he doesn't do anything for like years, like a decade. He has to engage the process. And for him, it has felt like a crucifixion to a lot of the old things that he holds as valuable. Sometimes the journey involves allowing things in us to die. Allowing Certain desires to even die. Jesus has something similar to say. He says it this way. He goes, look, uh, Luke 9, 23 and following. He says, Jesus said to everyone, all who want to come after me must say to themselves, take up their cross. Sorry, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will save them. What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves yet perish or lose their lives? Now, this is a very like messy passage, but I think we can at least take from it that, that there is a cost to following Jesus. That, that saying yes to Jesus is saying, I'm going to pursue this thing and I realize that I'm, the burden is light, he'll say elsewhere. But it's also intense. There's also things about it that I'm going to have to say no to. So fear and trembling, I think, I, and I, I'm learning this in my own life, like involves the ability to say no when it's the best thing you could possibly say. Sometimes the biggest fearful move you'll ever make in your life is simply saying no to something or someone. No, I, I don't feel that passionate about that thing anymore. Or no, I, I don't have to have that thing happen that I want happening. Or no, I don't need to pattern my life like this anymore. There's nothing more terrifying than saying no to something, even if you know, K-N-O-W, that it's good. When it's something you want more than anything. And Jesus says, look, you, you can follow me through that journey. Jesus says no to security. We looked at this last week. Jesus says no to security. Jesus says no to 
um, all of the privilege that he has as God, and as Paul said last week, empties himself of all of that stuff. And the glory of Jesus is in his execution and suffering. Jesus isn't glorified until he's executed. Isn't that fascinating in that, that poem? Jesus says, look, you're going to have to lose some stuff. But you might gain something that's even bigger than you imagined. You know, I, uh, several years ago, I, I read this book. And it, it's a very fascinating um, memoir that I've come to really love. I recommend it. I, I, you know, I think it was really quite fun. Um, Lauren Winner is her name. I don't know if you've read any books by Lauren Winner, but um, she had one of her first books was called Girl Meets God and was just like her story of becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, she grew up in a, in a Jewish context. She was Jewish and she outlines what that meant for her throughout the story. But what I, what I did this morning, I, I'm not gonna tell you everything about it, um, is I took a couple of quotes and thoughts from the book that I thought were really helpful because what it does is it illustrates this idea of process and working it out. Now, again, here the example is about like coming to choose Jesus. Now, for most of us, we've already done that. And for the people Paul's talking to, they had already done that. So it was more about what do you do with your identity as someone who's already chosen Jesus? But I think you'll get at least the parallel here a little bit. And so Lauren Winter um, early on in the story says this, my story doesn't fit well, very well with this conversation archetype. There are too many ruptures in the narrative. The ruptures are the most interesting parts of any text in that the ruptures, um, in that in the ruptures, we learn something new. Can you tell that she is a writer and has a PhD yet? At, I think she works at Yale. So there you go. Yale or Duke, I forget. But she says, look, like, like the story of how someone like instantly just becomes a follower of Jesus and everything, like she's just like, that doesn't work for me. I'm already like, okay, I'm interested. You know, I remember reading this like, oh, okay, so tell me more. Well, later in the book, she says this. And she's talking about a friend she had named Dove, which is a, a common Jewish name as I understand it. And um, this is what she says, kind of as she's starting to get challenged by this Jesus narrative that she doesn't know what to do with. Now, I think he could see something I could not see. He could see Jesus slowly goading me towards him. <laughs> this, is, this is her friend that's like still a friend as I understand it, kind of just observing like process and journey and questions and all of this stuff. And, and she goes further. A few pages later, she says, Again, she's a writer. It's so good. God was laying traps, leaving clues, clues I could have seen had I been perceptive enough. Oh, very fascinating. And so she she's just kind of gives this picture of like this, this thing, this life, this is process, it's journey, it's hard. And, and she keeps on going. And this is an honestly really fascinating observation. And on page 61, and I, I kind of just summarize and give you two snippet quotes. So this isn't a full quote. She's, she profoundly recognized that some Christians, and this is her words, are running from Christ. And she thought that, they, that she should stop running. Let me tell you the backstory. So she's at a, 
um, Q&A event at a, um, at, at what was a Christian church, I guess. Um, and, and you know us around here, let me give a preface to this. Like, like we're not like conservatives are good, liberals are bad, liberals are good, conservatives are bad, whatever. Like, um, we try and reach both directions. We love both directions. Uh, we love people that aren't followers of Jesus. Like, we're, we're into love. We think that's the thing Jesus said, like, love people, love God. Like, so we try to do that. But for her, her experience there was that this church was so, um, and I'll use the word liberal, and I mean this theologically, that, that they really weren't thoroughly orthodox in their Christianity, right? They didn't believe in the deity of Jesus as she heard it, um, the resurrection, you know, some of these things that are really tenets to Christianity. And, and so she's hearing this, and hearing how the pastor is talking about Jesus being a cultural expression of some God up there that all religions are trying to find and, you know, all that. And some of you grew up hearing some of this stuff, right? And so I don't want to caricature that, but, but that's how she experiences this. And she walked away from that, oddly enough, not a Christian saying, you've already got this stuff and don't even know it. You're running from Jesus? I got to stop running. And for her, that's her moment in the process. Totally counterintuitive. Totally not the space I would have imagined that happening. And in fact, she stops running and eventually will choose to be baptized and will go for it all the way. And now she's kind of known as a theologian, like writer, thinker, leader in this movement. Now this is years ago now. And she, she goes though and she says, look, as this happens, she's got her identity. She's a Jewish woman. She has Jewish friends, family, every, you know what I mean? Like, this is her network. And she says, one of the things that happens is, you, and I should say, um, I think you fell family-less, you feel family-less. You lose all sorts of things. Your family, all the people who made you their own and who made you, um, who I can't read today, and who you made yours. She's not really talking about shunning per se. But for her, she noticed that along the journey, it was disruptive. There were things that had to go. Things that no longer were part of the process as the process progressed forward. And she highlights how, how this is painful, but she also highlights how in a society like ours, we've got to honor process more than we maybe would have 10, 20, 30 years ago. How many of you know someone who's in process on something that's important? Be it faith, be it other things. And how many times has a person who's in process been told by people who don't honor process that your process is a waste of your time, you should just do the right thing, you should know the right thing, you should be the right kind of person, you should, you know. Process is hard. And according to the Bible, it's supposed to be. And there's something redemptive about how hard it is. I hate that part of the Bible. But I love what that part of the Bible produces in my life. Without fear and trembling, without questions, without pain without costing me something. I am who I am and I'm never anyone else. And I, you know, I like who I am, but I want to become the person 
I can be, you know? That's what's so beautiful about following Jesus. The cost is always redemptive. The cost is for your good. The cost says you live in a world that has conditioned you, that has made you into a certain kind of person to experience certain kinds of things. And the cost is a result of that, but the cost is good. And in fact, it leads to shining like stars in the cosmos. It leads to becoming a kind of person who, who radiates love, who radiates goodness, fear and trembling. If we were to go to the second kind of phase, fear and trembling and shining like stars. This is all about the gifts. What are the gifts? What are the things that you now look back on? Maybe um, the gym metaphor didn't work for you, but you can actually look at something else in your life that was really significant, and you can say, you know what? Like, this was hard for me to adopt as part of who I am. This thing was really hard for me. And maybe, uh, you know, it was part of your own faith journey. And, and, and you're, you're journeying with Jesus, and, and you're like, you know, dude, this is hard. Like, I don't, I don't want to keep going. But you had this sort of tug, like, ah, it's worth it. It's worth it. What are the gifts that you can name right now that have been worth fear and trembling back there? Not that God would ever desire that people just have fear and trembling in their lives, but that, unfortunately, that's what we've got. And so can we use it well? I wonder also, beyond just naming the gifts of your own process so far, I wonder if there's a space where it's now like, well, I'm in the middle of this working it out thing in this area and it's painful or annoying. It might not be that intense, but it might just really be bothersome. And maybe Paul's encouragement to you is you, you can shine like a star in that area. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're awesome and everyone likes you. It means that something, some intrinsic quality about the life you have with Jesus is going to grow and grow. And as that grows, your influence towards love is going to grow as well. And then maybe one last question, and I'll, I'll leave us with this. What might God be inviting you to start working out that you haven't wanted to work out? Because it's scary. What is that one thing that maybe has been lingering in the background that if you were to go there, you know that it's going to cost you something, cost you sleep, cost you relationships, maybe, hopefully not, cost you something physically. I just hope that we can walk away today saying, look, God is into process and God is into redemption of process. God is into taking fear and trembling, something that God would never design in your life. But God is really good at manipulating fear and trembling circumstances into beauty and potential and possibility. I know a lot of you and I know a lot of your stories and, um, you know, one of the things that you do as a pastor is you don't tell people other people's stories. That's, it's a weird thing I do. Like, I go home after a meeting and I, I have this vault, this, like, pastor vault that, like, no one has access to. It's very awkward. 
Um, it's a gift and a grace, I think, because it's just back there and somehow it doesn't get accessed. And honestly, I sort of like forget lots of it and it's almost on purpose. So if I ever forget a detail about your story, you know, it's actually, I'm just mentally protecting that story somewhere back there or I'm just ignorant, one of the two. But, but, but here's what's fascinating to me. That the people I know in my church community have been working it out and will continue to work it out. And I can see in so many of your lives shining because of it. Don't give up. Don't give up. And don't fear and tremble alone. We're here for you. Let's do this. Mm-hmm.